Father, we thank you for this great opportunity, this privilege to be in your word today. We still remain a free country where we can say, thus says the Lord. And we can unashamedly speak of the word of God and the truths of God's word. We thank you for that, Lord. We beg you for many years of freedom, Lord. We desire that, not just for ourselves, but for the furtherance of the gospel. And so we ask that we would take advantage of every day that we have this right. Lord, thank you for each and every soul that is represented here today. We're so glad they're here. We thank you that the church is a family. It's a family that we love one another and we care for one another. We have an elder brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a father who is our Abba Father, our God in heaven. And we are his children. And what a privilege it is to gather, Lord. Father, we know the church is not just limited to the local assemblies like ours, but it's scattered around the world. And there, are, there are many, Lord, who are part of your great church under the headship of Jesus Christ and many are mis- of, of which our missionaries are involved, Lord. So we pray for them. We ask, Lord, you would meet their needs, Lord. Some of them are suffering in different ways. Some of them are in very cruel situations in countries that are so locked down, Lord. We give them mercy and grace. Continue to give them joy and the gospel on their tongue, ready to share with neighbors and friends. Lord, thanks for those who could be here, but we do remember those who can't. Those who are suffering from surgeries or illnesses, Lord, or those who are just not strong enough yet to come to church. And so we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them. May they hear this message and be encouraged. And we give us all glory Do your name for what we're going to sing, say, and do throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm getting close to wrapping up this series on salvation, and then I'm going to move after Easter to the book of 1 Corinthians. I can't wait to teach it. Uh, The more I study it, the more excited I am to teach the book of 1 Corinthians, and I encourage you to start reading through it, and you'll see why I'm so excited as you read through that book. Um, But we're going to finish next week looking at Luke chapter 16, The Rich Man and Lazarus. And we're going to wind this series up on salvation with a, a, a powerful parable that the Lord gave. And he gives us a view into hell, um, into heaven. Uh, it's quite a parable given by our Lord. And we'll conclude our series on salvation with that message. But today I want to speak about perseverance in heaven. I think they go really well together. And I think they're the result of this great salvation, both of them. Because God has known us from the foundations of the world, plucked us out of our depravity, this dead state, right? Remember, we've worked through this many, many times, both sideways and up and down. We were dead, 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 not kind of dead, not sort of dead. We were dead. Is that true? We're dead in our sins, and God in his great glory reaches down and breathes life into our dead hearts and takes out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh so we can believe. And and God gives us an eternal relationship with him. He pursues us with grace that's irresistible and he won't let us go. And the result of that is men and women, boys and girls who know the Lord Jesus Christ persevere. We persevere because God saved us. We do not persevere in order to get saved. Is that clear? That would be works, wouldn't it? And then as we persevere and we 
um, understand all this great salvation, it leads to eternal life. That's the result of God's great work. So this morning, I want to begin with eternal life. (laughs) I want to talk about that for a few points. And then we'll end with the challenge of running this race. Are we still in the race? Are you still running? (laughs) Because there is a race to be run, and there is a line to be crossed, and there is a heaven that waits for us. Heaven is a, a difficult reality for us, though, isn't it? How much have you thought about heaven lately? See, our minds are so naturally set on the things of earth, and, and not so much in a sinful way, good things like family and work and church and, and relationships and even pleasures God give us here. It's very difficult for us to think in that heavenly realm at times. In fact, it's quite foggy at times, isn't it? What will heaven be like? Who's there and who's not? What will our days be filled with? Because we know there's no night. We know our Lord has gone to prepare a place for us and is coming again to have us with himself. And yet the Bible does not tell us great amount of detail of what it will be like. We know this, our minds will not be like they are today. They will be perfect. And so our minds won't easily drift as Scott preaches this sermon. You see, are awake. We will, we will have minds like the Lord. And so it is a difficult reality to think about the spiritual realm of what heaven will be like. And yet the Bible is full of truth to remind us that God has a heaven for us. And it is the result of his great salvation. Then you add on to that, as humans, we deal with the loss of loved ones. That's hard on us. And many of us know and are assured that our loved ones, we knew um, that were here with us, they are in heaven because of their faith in Christ alone. And we have that assurance. And yet it's still difficult to imagine what eternal life is like, what they are even doing right now. Because it is so gravely different than here. We wrestle with what what life looks like after death. It isn't long before we die that memories begin to soon fade, right? Oh, we can get together and conjure up and talk about things that we love about our loved ones and so forth. But pretty soon life takes us back away and we begin to work with the living, right? What's going on here? That's okay. That's what God has us to do. But life is short. And death comes if the Lord doesn't return. But God has a plan. D.L. Moody was speaking on the subject of eternal life. And he said this, he said, Soon you will read in the newspapers that I am dead. (laughs) He goes, don't believe it for a moment. I will be more alive than I ever have been before. Earth will recede and heaven will open before me. That's pretty scriptural. I can point to passages that tell us that. See, though our loved ones pass on and we don't quite know what they're doing and what's going on there. To them, the reality is real. Heaven does open up. And at that moment, that second after life is gone here on this earth, they walk into the presence of God and eternity. And oh, how blissful that must be, though I don't understand it. But I do long for it. I began to try to write some definitions and think about eternal life this week and Let me give you some of them. They're weak. They fail to 
wholly present the truth of eternal life, but let me just give you some of my thoughts. Eternal life is a spiritual life given by God that each true believer physically enjoys. Yes, it is a spiritual life. We'll be with the Lord in spirit, but it is also a physical life. We will have new bodies. This spiritual life will completely surpass earthly life in quality and joy. I know that much for sure. It's got to get better. (laughs) This eternal life will be connected again to a physical body and a mind of that like our Lord Jesus Christ's body and mind and will be extended forever. I know that, the Bible teaches. This eternity will be spent in the presence of God and His glory will surpass anything and all things the human mind can conjure up. So then I wrote a definition. It's short. Eternal life is God making himself most fully known to those he loves. I don't know us to write. In my humanity, I want to talk about gold streets and, and life with the Lord and family and all of those things. But ultimately, I kept coming back to what the scripture teaches and what I believe about God. And I wrote down, eternal life is God making himself most fully known to those he loves. Those who have rejected him will see his wrath. But they will not see the full God we will see. And so I find great comfort as I await eternal life, though I do not completely understand it, and I can study and study and still say, oh God, please come soon. (laughs) I find myself longing to be in his presence. I want to give you four thoughts today around this idea of my sermon title, The Great Reward of the Persevering Redeemed. The Great Reward of the Persevering Redeemed. Number one, God has a physical kingdom made up of a new heavens and earth. God has a physical kingdom made up of a new heavens and earth. After final judgment of the loss, all believers, all true believers, will enter into full enjoyment of eternal life. God will judge the lost. He'll separate the sheep and goats. And those that are on his right will enter into the presence of this triune God forever. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, come, listen to this, you who are blessed of my father. Now listen to the details of Christ's instruction about eternal life and where it started. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Notice how personal that is. Prepared for you. Now listen to this. From the foundation of the world. What a complex, complete statement of eternal life. God has separated those. He's caused us to be on his right by his grace and mercy. He calls us who are blessed by the Father. God has blessed us. Certainly that's got to be true just in our salvation alone. He's given us an inheritance of a kingdom that he prepared individually for us. And he did it started this whole thing from the foundations of the world. This has always been his plan to bring us into his presence. So our Lord is preparing a kingdom where sin shall not reign any longer, and we will joyfully serve him there. Revelations chapter 22, verse 3 says this, there will be no longer any curse. Isn't that going to be amazing? Your lawn starting to grow yet? Anybody got any dollar weed in it? (laughs) I mean, just think about the curse, how strong it is, right? 
The curse is equal, is equal to death, isn't it? So Christ came and he took the curse for us. And the Bible says there will no longer be, this is a scene in heaven, we're going to get to this in a few minutes. There is a scene in heaven, there will be no longer any curse in the throne of God, and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. I know there's a lot of talk going on about slavery and servants and all that stuff. I am a servant, a slave of the king, and I am proud of it. And I gladly submit my life to him. And I will follow him to the ends of the earth. It's easy to think of believers starting eternity in heaven. But it seems to be that God has something greater in store before the infinite years of heaven are enjoyed. When we study the Bible, we begin to realize that there's such a strong teaching that God has a plan to create new heavens, plural, and a singular new earth. It's all through the Bible. And it's, and it's going to be created for his redeemed. And he, and he wants them, he wants us to see it. He wants us, us to understand what he originally had in mind for his highest creation before they chose sin. And he's going to let us see it. And he's going to make all things new. Well, you think maybe this is just a New Testament teaching. This is not New Testament teaching. This is a teaching that's been with the nation of Israel for a long time and given to them, but also given to us, the church. And it starts all the way back in Isaiah 65. When you get to the last six, seven chapters of Isaiah, they are precious. Here's a nation that the northern tribes have already gone. The Syria has taken them away. They're in captivity. Isaiah is warning the southern tribes that you're next. And Jeremiah comes along behind that. And during his administration, everything falls apart, right? And they go to Babylon. They, they, have not, they have not worshipped the God who brought them out of Egypt. And yet he promises them over and over in the end of Isaiah of what he's going to do. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I, this is God speaking, create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a great statement, isn't it? All of this is going away. And you say, well, there's some good things here. <laughs> Nothing will compare to bring, being in the presence of God. I love this verse. I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or even come to mind. Now, what does that mean? Is God looking down on this life that he gave us and his beautiful creation, all of that? No, what he's saying, what the text is teaching us, is there's no comparison. <laughs> you know when you found that great ice cream parlor, right? And you start going there, and it just doesn't compare about that. You don't even talk about the old one anymore. Because now this new one is so great. And that's such a, that's a, such a poor analogy of what heaven will be like. I think what God is saying is, look, I got something so great, you won't even think of what I did before. That's what heaven waits for us. Later on in Isaiah 66, he says this, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. One of the great reasons I, our church, at least I know for us, we don't give up on the nation of Israel. We believe God has a plan for Israel. But we believe this also is written to us because he's going to make two people, one eventually. And here he says, I'm going to make this new heavens and this new earth. They're going to endure before me. That means they'll have perfection to stand before God, this new heavens and this new earth that you and I will be on. What a great and awesome God. Peter, I am convinced, Peter writes First and Second Peter with the book of Isaiah open. 
I think that was his textbook as he wrote. But he hitchhikes on this statement. 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise... We well, must have got this from Isaiah. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, what a different heavens and earth we're going to be on. Can you imagine a, an earth with no unrighteousness? Not, not one sin or even the thought of sin, not, not even an inkling of sinful, evil, unholy things will be present in this great heavens and earth that Jesus will again create for us. Brian started out on this passage when he read to us. He said, Revelation chapter 21, 1 said, Then I saw the new heavens and the earth, John speaking here now, for the first heaven and the, and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. So this earth, as it's stained with sin, the fallenness has cursed this whole world. And, and, and our world, our current world, is working really, really hard to hold on to this thing, man. And, and, and don't get too mad at them. Because if they don't know Jesus, this is the only thing they have. So they're trying to save every tree and every snail and every spotted owl and everything. Because this is all they have. They, they don't know that there's a Lord that's going to give them a brand new heaven and earth. This is why we preach the gospel. And he says, look, all that's going to pass away. When you start thinking about this, this is great motivation for the church, isn't it? Peter, again using the book of Isaiah, says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, just listen to these beautiful words. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The Greek words, a great bang, great noise. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Notice it says it'll come like a thief. Come like a thief. I believe the church will be raptured out by this time. God will pour his judgment upon this earth. But there's a day coming like a thief. No one sees. And God is going to snuff out this world. He has the right to do it because it belongs to him. The verse goes on, verse 11 goes on to say, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Now listen to this encouragement. Listen to this. If God's going to destroy this heavens and earth, with this intense heat, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? See, eschatology should teach holiness, shouldn't it? According to this verse, if, or if our eschatology is correct, if we believe the Bible here, that God is going to destroy heavens and earth, he's going to destroy this um, world that is as fallen under the curse, if that's true, Peter says, what sort of people should we be? What kind of people are we? Are we people who are going to be holy in our conduct and godliness? Oh, what a great challenge. Who would have thought that he would use eschatology and destruction of what we know as the earth and its universes to be a motivation for our holiness? Do you think that's a good idea? In other words, here's maybe what Peter's saying. Uh, this thing that you're holding on to really tightly, poof, someday. Let go. Let go. I got something greater. Keep your hope set on me. Keep running the race set before you. 
fact, that's what he says in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements with melt with intense heat. Now, turn with me back to Revelation chapter 21. Here John, in this great vision of the future that God blessed him with, says in verse 1, he saw this new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So now Peter has told us how that's going to happen. Certainly our Lord, our Creator, our Sustainer will just pull his hands away because he holds all things together by the word of his power, right? Hebrews chapter 1. So he'll just pull away. It will be destroyed. But after that, John says, a new heaven and a new earth will come because the first has passed away and there will be no longer any sea. And then verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So John goes on to tell us that there will be a new union between heaven and earth. And it's understood in this magnificent city called the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a gift from God. God gives us this new place to live. It is completely free of sin and all the things that would encompass it. Notice in verse 3 that John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, now listen to this, the tabernacle of God is among men. And we're studying in midweek on Wednesday nights and we got Moses up on the mountain and, and he's seeing God's glory and just proclaiming the evidence of his attributes and so forth. And, all, and, and in his possession were blueprints and, and writings of how God was going to reside with men and there was going to be veils and tabernacles and walls and all kinds of things, and, and there was got to be a ton of cleansing and all this work that had to happen for God to be with men. But now, after sin is done away with, judgment is done, his family is complete, he comes and lives in our midst. And think about this, he's doing that right now through his spirit. But the spirit will be unveiled in the fullness of God, the Godhead. And he'll dwell with us, it says. And he will dwell among them, and they, listen to this, they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. If you're a believer in this room, this awaits you. This is not for someone else, this is for you, it's written for you. This is hope, this is what helps us in a persevering race that we keep going. So God will bless his people, and he'll create this new union between heaven and earth with a brand new creation that our souls should long for. They should long for it. And he will live among us. Second thought. Heaven is the throne of God and the home of his worshipers. Heaven is the throne of God and is the home of his worshipers. Well, scriptures are clear that during this present age, God dwells in a place called heaven. The Bible says that. Back to Isaiah 66. I know we can't get you to all these passages. Jot them down. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord... Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. It goes on to say, where then is a house that you could build for me? <laughs> See, they were putting everything in the tabernacle. They were, they were actually engaged in false worship. They would go to temple in the morning and burn their babies in the afternoon to Baal. 
And yet God is kind and he reveals himself to them and says, heaven is my throne. Well, where's that place? His glory fills the heavens. The other day I saw a picture from the Mars rover and it shot a picture back of Earth. It was so tiny they had to put on the picture a little arrow to this dot and it said Earth. I thought that's really good to see. There's the footstool of God. And he fills the heavens. His train, his glory, and all that he is. You remember that Jesus taught us how to pray? What did he say in Matthew 6, 9? He said, pray then this way, our Father who is in heaven. This is where our Lord is. Heaven is the throne of God. Our Father who is in heaven, hallow Sacred, holy is your name. According to the scriptures, they repeatedly teach us that Jesus is there now, right? Peter again said Jesus is at the right hand in 1 Peter 3.22, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him. He's gone into heaven. And then you get to that tremendous text in Acts chapter 7. Oh, such a favorite text. There, Uh, Stephen has preached this marvelous sermon. He's walked down through the history of nation of Israel. He has proven their sin and their rejection of the Messiah. And they begin to pelt him and, and try to kill him with rocks. And he falls to his knees and looks up to heaven. And the Bible says this, and behold, this is Stephen speaking, I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. For just a moment in that precious time as Stephen is moments away from his death. God opens up that miraculous spiritual dimension of heaven and he's able to see the son right at the right hand of the father. And within moments he was with him. It has always been our Lord's plan to take us to be with him, right? Told his disciples the night before his death, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to my own self, to myself. That where I am, you will be also. What a great command. Where he is, we are. And where's he at? He's in heaven. As we said earlier, eternal life in heaven can be defined as a place where God most fully makes his presence known to his beloved children. And certainly God is omnipresent, isn't he? He's everywhere. We, we understand that. He's here today in his spirit with us. He resides personally. Wherever the church is gathered, he is with us. But he does make himself clear, clear, clearly known in certain places. And I don't think there's any greater place where God has revealed his presence than heaven itself. This is where the angels bow down and worship him. This is Isaiah 6, this vision that Isaiah had of angels singing and crying out, holy is holy and holy is his name. The redeemed, those who have gone before us, they see him and worship him with inexpressible joy, at least in this life. So clearly God and his heavenly dwelling are outside of of created space and time, and yet God intends to join heaven and earth in this special relationship between the heavens and earth and build his kingdom for his family to be with him. Now, to the world, when we speak about heaven, it's some kind of fairy tale, isn't it? And even if they believe or conjure something up in their mind about some life after death, it's very self-centered, isn't it? 
they'll make it all about them and what they'll have and what it'll be like. And it's pretty twisted and so forth. The religions have done the same way. The Muslim world says, oh, for those who kill infidels, there will be 70 virgins. And all of this crazy talk comes out that's unbiblical and just self-centered and, and not true. Even modern-day liberal theologians of now beginning to abandon a physical existence of heaven and speak only of a state of mind. And this is because they reject the scriptures. They reject the all-sufficient scriptures and their hearts are still remain in their flesh. But the Bible is clear, the scriptures are clear that heaven does have a location. <laughs> and it's not subject to time and space. Look with me at Acts chapter 1. Put something there in Revelation. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Acts chapter 1 is a good place to see that heaven is a place. Jesus has been resurrected. He's shown himself to many. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the list of people who have seen him. He's now gathered with his 11 disciples. And I think this is found in Luke 24. We'll look at this in a minute. He's probably outside of Jerusalem, near Bethany. And he begins to tell his disciples that he's leaving. He told them that they're going to be missionaries. And they're going to witness, be a witness of him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. You can see just missions grow as, as culture and society spreads around the world. The gospel goes with it is the idea here. And then in verse 9, notice with me, he says, After he said these things, he lifted up, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, I would have been doing the exact same thing. While he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Now listen to this. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, it's a place, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What a great statement. There is a heaven. And it is God's heaven. It is where he resides. And our Lord Jesus is at the right hand, the full authority and power of the Godhead, right there at his right hand in a place called heaven. And this narrative of Jesus' ascension into heaven points to the fact that there's a place where our Lord is going. And the angels, listen, the angels were intent on helping his disciples understand that the Lord was going there. He says, hey, men of Galilee, hey, snap out of it. <laughs> He's coming back. But he is in a place. Luke 24 is, I think, the... Uh, corresponding passage and the Bible says that he led them out this is verse 50 he led them out as far as Bethany so probably um, out the eastern gate around the Mount of Hill of the, the Mount of Olives and and then towards out towards Bethany is the idea here when he got there he lifted up his hands and blessed them and while he was blessing them he, par he parted from them and was carried into the heavens and, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually praising the Lord in the temple. Listen, I hope you're going to, when you get done with this, I, I think you're listening, but I hope you're just going to be full of joy when you talk about heaven. It's a beautiful place. 
Because God is there and He's going to reveal His glory to us. Just as God opened the eyes of Stephen in that blessed event at His death to the spiritual dimension hidden from us in this age, this heaven is a place. It's, it's not something created like this world. And yet, Jesus says He's gone to prepare a place. And it does exist in our space and time. And we have loved ones who have left us and are there now. And Jesus is there now. And he's in his physical body and he waits us who will be resurrected. And our physical bodies will stand before him. Now because Jesus was resurrected physically, we have assurance. 1 Corinthians 15, he will resurrect your body. And your body will meet your soul. And you will know each other. And worship with each other before the throne of God. Third thought. God's new heaven and earth will be a place of great beauty and joy. I want to go back to Revelation and just marvel. I'm not going to exeget this text. Um, I need about six weeks. (laughs) But I just want you to marvel at this text for just a moment. We clearly see um, that there's limitations to our finite minds when we start talking about infinite things like God and His glory and so forth. But the scriptures portray enough here. They portray enough of this new heavens and earth to show us that there's great beauty and great joy. Look at verse 21 again. Verse 2, I want to go back here. Notice the city is called holy. The city is called holy. That's a great thing. I'm in Revelations 21 too. It's holy. There will be no sin there. Can you imagine living in a community where there is no sin. What a beautiful thing. Living in a community of everyone there adores their God and Savior. Every thought is perfect. Every action is perfect. Every blissful joy is fully experienced to its uttermost. The city is holy. Notice it says it's coming down from God. I think that's a gift. This heaven, this new Jerusalem, this kingdom on earth, this new earth is a gift from God, much like our salvation. We did not earn it or deserve it in any way. God's giving it to us, just like he did our salvation. Now he gives us our eternal dwelling place. And notice he calls it like a bride adorned. Got a few newlyweds in the house this morning. Pretty cool when she came down that aisle. You remember that, men? The glory of a bride dressed in white walking towards her groom. This is the view God wants you to have of heaven. When you were married, everything flooded out of your mind. You were consumed with that person that you stared into the eyes of that one and said your vows to one another. God wants you to give you some kind of human understanding of what this will come down and be like. It'll surpass even your wedding. (laughs) Verse 3, he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And we talked about him dwelling with us. What an amazing thing that is. There's no veil anymore. There's there's no blockade. There's nothing in between us and the glory of God because we are his family. And we will sit at a table with him. 
and enjoy perfect harmony, a perfect family. Can, you, can we put that word together in this life, perfect family? <laughs> if you have one, you should lead the biblical counseling. <laughs> but you don't. But you will. You'll have a perfect family. Look with me at verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning. No tears. Tears are always a result of sin, aren't they? In some way or another. Yes, you're certainly there's tears of joy, but this is not what this is talking about. Tears are a result of sin, right? Hurt, pain, all those things. Maybe there's a possible awareness for a short time of our, our former life. I don't know. Maybe we, we're there and we're overwhelmed and we thought, well, Lord, you gave me a measly 75 years to live for you and I, I just didn't do much for you. Maybe in his grace he brings us in as by fire, 1 Corinthians 3 says, and we realize that we could have lived for him and maybe that's what those tears are. I don't know. But they're certainly attached to sin, sin in some way and that will be removed. Notice this verse talks about complete satisfaction with God's judgment. That's what I think it's tied to. Someone said, well, how could you be in heaven if, if you know your relatives are in hell? Because you have a mind like the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be perfectly 100% satisfied. In fact, not just satisfied with his judgment. You will praise his judgment. I know that's hard to get our minds around. But this is what we see. Notice death has been eradicated. The past is gone. Boy, it's hard to think about that, isn't it? Everything about us is right now, isn't it? What's happening in our lives? What's, what, what relationships are we in? What's going on? What's our financial status? What, what's going to happen with our health? When, when are we going to start having to do with this and start doing this? And I mean, we're just consumed with these things. It's just the nature of being human, isn't it? All that will be gone. Look at verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. We'll watch the Creator create again. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Perfect creation of God on display for us. And notice that he says, write these things. He's speaking of the sufficiency of his word. This is my word. Write them. They're going to be faithful and true. You can bank on it. And when you have doubts, and we all have them at times, wow, is this really going to happen? We think of this so spectacularly because the world judges this stuff and makes such false views of what heaven looks like. When you read this, you're to be reminded God is faithful and God is true. And don't let your mind be robbed of those truths. This is what he's going to do. He told John, write this down. Look at verse 6. Then he said to me, it's done. <laughs> kind of sounds like it's finished. He finished the first creation and man ruined that. So his son came and finished the work that would need to, become, to be able to come to God. And he said it's finished on the cross. And now he's provided perfect salvation, a perfect holy standing for you and I so that we can even enjoy this life and walk through this life in a perfect uh, standing before God and, and he gives us the strength to work on our practical holiness but then we get here and now it's all done the battle's over the fight of sin is done the effects of Satan and his demons have all been they have been all been thrown into the lake of fire God has conquered it's done I love that verse it's done and here God says I am the Alpha and the Omega 
the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the waters life without cost. It just, his grace just doesn't stop, does it? Not only in salvation does he give us life. Jesus says, drink, my, drink from me. I have water that you'll never thirst again. But this, this grace in this beautiful example of living water is given to us for eternity. And, and look, I think what he's saying is you'll, there's nothing more. To, you'll never thirst after anything else. I'm everything you need. Brothers and sisters, as I studied this, I said, Lord, I can't get my mind around it. I, I, can't, I can't get there. I'm stuck in this flesh, and, and it, it, it weighs on me. And I think about people who don't know you, and I, and I think about my own troubles and stuff. And so I turn to this, and I, be, I remind myself this is faithful and true, and it will be done someday. And so my job is to believe. To believe. And he even gives me the grace to do that. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. Bunch of overcomers in here. And you're overcomers because you came through Jesus Christ alone. You will never be an overcomer if you come by your own strength. Oh, I'm good. I'm better than the next person. You're not going to overcome and you're not going to inherit. You come as an, uh, one empty-handed. In fact, the only thing you actually have on that hand is your sin. That's the overcomers. And they inherit this kingdom that God has made for us. Drop down to verse 11 for sake of time. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like very costly stones, stones of crystal uh, clear as grass, uh, jasper. The city is, is that God delivers is radiant, right? And, and think about it. everyone who's in the presence of God radiates. Moses comes off the mountain. He's radiating. Put a veil on you. You scare us to death, right? The angels come from the Lord to announce the birth, and they're radiating because they've been. This city has God in it, and it's radiating with his glory. Oh, you can go down and read through verse 16 and see the immense size of this thing. It's immense and beyond our imagination. And then you can follow it down and just see how precious it is, how the city is constructed with precious jewels, things that we people would die to have here. He uses them as construction materials. It's, it's amazing. Beyond what our mind can grasp. And then you work your way all the way down to verse 22. And you say, I saw no temple. What are you saying? There's no separation. There's no more earthly temple here. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. <laughs> he is with us for all of eternity. Look at chapter 22, and I just want to throw in a few verses here just to encourage you. Verse 5, and there will be no longer any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. The glory of the Son of God will light all of this new creation. And we will rule with him. I don't understand all of those things. I can only take what the Bible says literally here and say, okay, Lord, you have a beautiful job of worship to do for you in heaven, and I look forward to it. 
I think the most important things than, than the physical beauty that's described here in these verses and more important than the fellowship of God's people with every tribe and tongue and nation that will be around the throne from all of history. And, and things even more important that we're free from pain and sorrow and suffering. And even more important than reigning with God in His new in heavens. And far more important than, than any of the facts that Scriptures has related to us is the truth that we will be in the presence of God and our fellowship will be unbroken. He has prepared this for us. David longed for this. Psalm 1611, he says, You have made known to me the path of light. In your presence is the fullness of joy. I don't think we know this joy yet. The closest thing we come to is when we're saved. When you realize your sins have been forgiven. This is a joy so full beyond what we can imagine. Revelations chapter 4 and 5 give a glimpse to John. He looks into that and says, look at the people around the throne. They're in utter worship. Perfect unity together. Every tribe, tongue, nation, people around the throne with angels and, and, and all kinds of beings around this throne. They're all in one accord in perfect unity worshiping the Lamb. Oh, that'll be us someday. And we long for that. Well, let me get to my last thought because I want to encourage you to persevere now. Number four, the saved will persevere for the glory of God. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you just a couple of verses that are pretty thematic of the New Testament. They're verses that challenge us and make us ask questions of ourselves and and if we're truly part of his family. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says this. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. Engaging in evil deeds. Earlier he's told us that we're dead in our sins. Verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you. <laughs> verse 21. If you just stay there. It's over Rover. I mean, you just don't have a relationship with God. But verse 2, but now you've been reconciled. He's changed our position. That's what reconciliation means. He changes from dead to alive, from blind to seen, from lost to found. We are now in a relationship with him. You've been reconciled. He's reconciled you in his flesh. Jesus did this bodily on the cross through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's how you're going to step into heaven. I know if you're going to be honest with yourself, when you read that verse, you go, you've done something more than I can see at times. If I can step into heaven holy and blameless. And that's our positional holiness. And that's how you're going to come into heaven. Because no one else comes into heaven who is not holy and blameless, not cleansed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But then look at verse 23, and this is interesting here. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, and I Paul, which is a minister of it. Isn't that interesting? Now, we want to be clear here. Our salvation is not based on our perseverance. But our perseverance will question our salvation sometimes. Doesn't it? 
It, he, he says, if indeed you continue. See, there's always those who would say, oh, I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, I believe there's a Jesus, and yet there's no fruit of any change. And yet, give me heaven. I've told too many people through the years, I said, oh, you want to live in sin, how could you have hope of heaven? Somewhere along the line, repentance comes, and, and what we are not talking about perfection here. Yes, our standing is perfect, but yet we're talking about a growing direction towards the Lord. Yes, with some fails and swales and bumps, but we're continuing to move towards the Lord. And listen, Paul says, look, if you continue in the faith, that shows God saved you. If you fall away and you go out from us, we know that you were never a part of us. And, and that's what the Bible talks about. So perseverance is a result. Look, if you're saved, you're going to persevere. Let me say that clear. Does everybody understand that? Perseverance does not gain salvation. Salvation gives perseverance. And the saved keep going. And it's hard at times, and it's frustrating, and we fall, and we repent and confess our sins, and we get back up, and yet we persevere because God saved us. And brother or sister, if that's you, you have security in heaven. Because you know Jesus is your Savior, even though you stumble at times. Hebrews 13, 14 says it this way, for we have become partakers of Christ. And then it says this, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. And again, he's teaching there's a result of salvation. There's a result that God saves you. And he gives you assurance. And you will finish the race. I want to encourage you this morning because doubtlessly there's people in here and I fall in this category from time to time where I go through spiritual struggles. It seems like my flesh and Satan are working against me at times, right? Do you ever feel this? Do you go through struggles where your attitudes and thoughts are not right? I do. And yet what brings you back is the cross each and every time because he's forgiven you. And you get up and you run again. God strengthens you for these tasks. That's the result of salvation. You persevere. Perseverance isn't a perfect line. That's just perfection. <laughs> Perseverance is running in a difficult race. Keeping your eyes on the prize when everything's trying to pull your eyes off of it. That's when you know you're saved because you run when maybe others say, oh, you're a fool, and they fall away. You keep going. This is perseverance. We persevere because we're saved. We keep growing. Spirit of God shows us who we are. See, on one hand, we want to be careful that we're not fruit inspectors constantly. Because that can be legalism. We're comparing ourselves with somebody else, or worse, we start comparing that guy with us. Oh, well, I'm better than him. That can be dangerous. But on the other hand, to say we are saved and yet produce no fruit, it then becomes a mockery of the saving power of Christ and the work of the Spirit that can change a life. So somebody said, well, I walked, a, I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, I raised a hand, I did all that, and yet there's no evidence of change, there's no desire for the things of God. They reject the Word of God as being His all-sufficient Word. Oh, friend, I would have you look hard whether you are in the faith or not. In fact, if we don't preach that and talk about that, we would fail what God has charged us to do. He sent us to rescue 
the lost. And so we preach, and in the United States, where the gospel has been preached for centuries upon centuries now, doubtlessly there are many tares among the wheat. And so when we look at perseverance, perseverance is one who says, Oh God, will you help me? I can't do this on my own. I am weak without you. May your spirit empower me. The stuff's all through the scriptures. First John chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandment is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Meaning he's given us a perfect standing before God. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he is walked. James says, show me your faith, I'll show you deeds. Show me deeds, I'll show you faith. They go hand in hand. They're a result of the great power of God. This is what he does for us. Let me just say this. I am so thankful God produces fruit in me. Because if not, if it was left up to me, I would doubt my salvation. I am grateful God is at work. I am grateful for conviction. I am grateful for repentance. I am grateful for a heart humbled under the word of God. That tells us that we are believers. The unbeliever can't do that on their own. Oh friend, oh brother or sister, do you fall under that great grace? I want to close with one passage. Go to 1 Peter. Excuse me, 2 Peter. Chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter introduces himself as a bondservant. He's a lifer. He has the same faith as all the rest of the people he preaches to. He does not set above, does not have some special endowment of faith because he knows God gave each believer faith through the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. He knows that peace and grace, verse 2, are multiplied to you as you grow in the knowledge of the Lord. I think some people don't experience the great grace and peace of God because they're not growing. They're not growing in their knowledge of Him. They're not studying and knowing Him. And so they, they don't maybe taste and experience the grace and peace that God has for them. But knowing this, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Life, I think, is salvation. Godliness is the daily stuff. His word has given you both. And it comes through the true knowledge of him. And you're only going to find that through the Bible. And that's who you'll see his glory and his excellence. Verse 4. By these he has granted us precious and magnificent promises. I'm bringing a new heaven and earth. <laughs> that's right. That's one promise we've looked at today. I'm going to give you a new body and a new mind. You're going to be like my son. Right? All these great promises. So that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature and go, well, how does that work? How do I become divine takers of the triune God? He puts his spirit in you at salvation. The Godhead dwells in you. That's how you're a divine partaker of, of the nature of God. Well, that's just not some ordinary person, right? This is why Paul says, hey, don't you know you're a temple of the living God? <laughs> Where are you taking the temple? I mean, this is a beautiful passage, isn't it? And notice we've escaped the corruption of this world and its lust. And then he says this. 
And I think these are great verses of assurance. For this very reason, apply all diligence. This is growing. This is progressive sanctification. This, is, this takes effort on our part to respond to the grace of God in our life. In your faith, the faith is given to us. So he, never, he never says supply faith, right? He says in your faith, this is the faith God has given you. wouldn't have it without it. Supply moral excellence so your faith should drive moral excellence. Christians should be the most moral excellent people on the world. And yet many leaders in Christianity are on the front page of the news. Don't think it can't happen to you. Your faith should drive you to moral excellence. We should be saying no to sin. Your moral excellence, knowledge. Faith gives you ability to say no to sin and then that no to sin causes you to want to know God more and you, you pursue it and then your knowledge gives you self-control and so now you know a God, you know what he requires of us and what he wants of us and the worship that we should bring to him and now self-control begins to come and then self-control gives perseverance. Now you can run this race because you're not out of control. You're not being pushed all over by winds of doctrine and, and lustful and worldly things. You have perseverance and you're able to run. And perseverance comes godless, god, uh, god, uh, godliness. You start reflecting your creator. And godliness brings brotherly kindness. Isn't that beautiful? I said this not too long. Everybody that moves into your house next to you should be blessed because they just moved into a Christian who believes the Bible. And we should be kind and brotherly kindness leads to agape love, this unconditional love. We love because he first loved us, right? For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful. See, that's what I was talking about. God, God makes you fruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord, Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted. And why are you blind for a moment? I think he's talking about Christians here. Because we've forgotten our purification. I have said this, I don't know, how many times to my own children, to my own self... Lord, I sin when I forget what you did. When I'm so consumed with me and what I desire and what's going on, pretty soon I've forgotten my purification and all of the costs that Jesus went through. And then he says this, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, oh, I love this. Here's some assurance. Be all the more diligent to make sure about his calling and choosing you. Ooh, those are some strong salvation uh, words there, aren't they? His calling and choosing you. You believe in the doctrine of election? Well, here's the result of it. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. See, when we walk with the Lord, we have security. You don't walk with the Lord, all kinds of things will chase your mind and heart around. In verse 11, for in this way, the entrance of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Here's how I interpret verse 11. When we walk with the Lord, the gates of heaven seem to be kicked wide open. And, we, and, we, and we're like Stephen in a sense and going, wow, he's there. This is all true. I want to be with him. I want to live my life for him. This is the work of our Lord. Father, thank you for just a few moments together with your church to remind ourselves, Lord, and just a few minutes, we'll reload and a whole nother group will come in and we'll be able to encourage um, them and well as this, Lord. But I'm grateful for these folks, Lord, each and every one of them that are here, myself included. 
As we're reminded, Lord, that you are faithful and true and all that you have written is faithful and true. And you, God, not only saved us by no effort of our own, have a place prepared for us. And you are going to bring a union between heaven and earth in a spectacular way. And you're going to be in the center of it. And there we will be with you, Lord. And though we don't fully understand nor can get these finite minds completely around that, we are in awe. You took dead people, lost people, blind people, and you put us in the center of town with yourself. It's overwhelming, Lord. Thank you for your love and gracious to us, Lord. Cause us to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? As you stand, I want to remind you that there will be an elder down front. If you need to talk with somebody, if you're new with us, there's guest services right back there. They have a gift for you. They want to welcome you. And, and then there's also a prayer room off to the left. And if you need to pray with somebody, maybe something God spoke to your heart through the word of God today, right through those doors and in the left, there's people there that will pray with you. Listen to this closing benediction and then we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, may you continue to cause your grace, light, and mercy to shine on us. May your spirit and your word spur us to run this race well for your glory. And when we fall, let us confess our sins and repent of them and submit to Christ. And may his word be strengthened by the spirit of God to get us back on our feet and running again. May we ponder and meditate on the great joys of heaven that await us. And may these truths motivate our life here below. But Lord, we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen.